0: Hi, this is Trent Bryson coming with a podcast called Grit Rising to you today. My whole vision of the podcast is to bring in stories and people that are doing unique things that don't always have the path painted for them. They're kind of finding a way to be different, unique, and special. Welcome back to another episode of Grit Rising. We have a very special guest today, Juan Pablo Escobar, the son of the one and only, the famous Colombian drug lord, Pablo Escobar. I met Juan Pablo about a year and a half ago. In the mountains of San Miguel, and it was such a special evening where we drank a lot of tequila, shared a lot of stories, and as my curiosity just ran so strong, I just kept peppering him with questions to the point where I told him he has to come on this podcast today. So I'm so excited. You have to listen to this one. Just think of being the son of the famous Pablo Escobar, the sole leader, the founder of Medellin Cartel, known as the King of Cocaine, amassed a net worth of $30 billion by the time of his death, making him the wealthiest criminal in history. And yet at the same time, his legacy is so controversial. While some think that he was the Robin Hood type that actually gave so much to the poorest in his country through love and lavish gifts, museums, zoos, churches, others identified the obvious part, the amount of terror that he placed on the people, the amount of drugs that he was responsible for moving into the United States. And it just created this controversy that he was loved by so many and hated by so many. After his death, his funeral had over 25,000 people. And now today, I have Juan Pablo Escobar, also known as Sebastian Martiquín. He had to change his name after leaving Colombia, telling the story of what what it's like to grow up in that environment. Thank you so much for being here today, Sebastian. We're going to start with you just telling us a little bit about your story and where you come from, and then we'll go on from there.
1: Okay, thank you very much, yes. I have the best memories of our tequilas uh, in Mexico, so I'm very happy to be here with you too. Uh, About myself, well, I grew up, you know, being the the son of one of the biggest criminals uh, known on Earth. My father was Pablo Escobar, And I began my childhood, you know, uh, between bandits, sicarios, and all the killers you could ever imagine. So I grew up in a very violent atmosphere. Uh, During the 80s, my father was perhaps one of the guys in charge of the drug trafficking business. He was responsible for 80% of the drug trafficking market. And so he was distributing all the drugs around the world in that time. And that made him a very powerful man, one of the richest on earth, and also uh, the most wanted man. And at the same time, I was, he was my father, uh, a loving father, uh, and a guy who lived a very contradictory life because at the same time he was you know, teaching about love and respect uh, toward his sons. Well, he was uh, not giving me the good example Uh, inside my own home. But, you know, I grew up in that very specific situation during the war on drugs in Colombia in the 80s and 90s. And we witnessed, you know, perhaps the most violent times uh, we ever suffered in Colombia as as citizens. So, and my father was um, the guy responsible, the guy behind the violence.
0: And Sebastian, when you tell this story, um, <clears throat> maybe a good part to pick up is you—you um, you were raised. You talk a lot about how much of a family man he is, how much he—he he really cared about you and your sister and, and, and mom. Um, do you mind kind of touching on that?
1: Yes, of course. Well, my my father—he was a very kind guy. Um, it's it's hard when I say. Pablo Escobar was a very kind guy because I know everybody remembers him as a drug dealer, as a terrorist, as a kidnapper, and, and a guy who committed several crimes. Uh, and and that's, that's part of his life and that's part of his story. And I believe it's full of contradictions every way you look at it because, you know, he was a guy who was, um, you know, exporting, uh, tons of drugs to the United States. And at the same time, he was building soccer fields with the same money just to, you know, to raise awareness and to tell the kids don't, don't consume any drugs. So he lived a, a contradiction in every second of his own life. And at the same time, he was supporting the paramilitary groups, the, the left, uh, to, to fight the leftists. And, and at the same time, he was supporting the left so he wasn't you know it's it's difficult to define the man behind because he was like he was supporting and sponsoring a lot of different ideas at the same time
0: and and when he goes through that um you talked about um when he when he was killed um and specifically at that moment in time you had to make a decision you had to make a decision what were you going to do with the rest of your life because you were you were the heir apparent correct but i would assume most people wanted you to take over the business um maybe walk through one the the pressure for you to take over the business and then we'll get into your decision and then specifically when you go in that that one day where you went in and you met with the rival family um i Maybe if you could talk a little bit about what, I mean, you had the whole world at your fingertips to take over the business. It had to have been appealing. Like, walk, walk me through that.
1: Well, that was exactly for me, perhaps one of the hardest moments uh, I ever lived, uh, and also the hardest decisions to make because, you know, I, I found myself in the middle of the road with two roads in front of me, and, and I need to choose which one, which path I was going to to work. And and for me, uh, it was the, the easiest path was, you know, continuing with my father's story and, and, and legacy. Uh, I had already the know-how. I inherited his power, you know, his men's and army and everyone was expecting me to take control of the situation and, and continue moving forward with my father's legacy and violence. and And I was about to continue with that legacy because when I, I was, you know, on the phone with my father and he told me, I'm going to call you again in a minute, something like that. And just 10 minutes after I received a call from a journalist saying your dad just passed away, the police confirmed the situation. So, and I reacted, uh, she kept asking uh, what I was going to do, what, how I was feeling and then and I committed perhaps one of the biggest mistakes in my life, and I was saying that I was, you know, going to avenge my father's death, and I reacted violently, and I said to myself and to the public, "I'm going to kill them all uh, by myself." So, how old were you when you said that? I was sixteen. Sixteen, and and, and you know, I when when I hang up the phone and and started realizing what what I just said you know the meanings of the words the 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 power of that declaration and how that was going to affect my life my present and my future and my father and my family's future and also my country's future because yes i was totally like convinced for 10 minutes of my life that my only path was going to be my father's so and, and I started realizing how I was going to continue with his legacy, and I had to demonstrate. I was forced to demonstrate that I could be better than my father, and that better means more violent. Better means, you know, more dangerous to society, and, and that that you know really took me by surprise. And I was remembering the many times that I had conversations with my father, when I was asking him to stop violence, to, to please don't, don't kidnap any more people, don't put any more bombs around the country, just stop violence. That was my, my I was begging him to stop. And, and I found myself in the situation where I was going to take control of that. And I, was, and I realized, okay, well, now it's in my hands to stop this. And perhaps this is my unknown path for me. And the path that I never dare. To walk a little bit, and, and and I choose that for me the unknown path the, the 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 thing that brings me more fear even to me because you know we all know our fathers we can learn from them, and unfortunately the things I learned from my father, they were very bad things you know how to commit violence how to put pressure on any government you know any presidential candidate can be killed anybody can die so. It's like uh, I I inherited a lot of power and a lot of knowledge at the same time and a lot of experience. And and for me, the most important thing is I I should remain calm and humble and I should respect uh, the legacy of this story and this experience. And I think that the true legacy is that my father showed me the path that I shouldn't take as a human being. For me and for the rest of the family. I believe that he made a good job by showing me, hey, this is not the way out, man. And so I, I, I convinced myself to continue believing in peace. And and I remember the words that when my father surrendered to the Catedral prison, uh, because I was asking him to stop violence and he dedicated his surrendering to, to me. He said, that he was doing this because of his fourteen-year-old pacifist son. So I feel, in a way, recognized by him because I truly believe in peace, even when we were during the middle of the war. Because I think I, I was, you know, discussing with my father and telling him, like, "Hey, guy, man, if you if you really need guns, you know, to stand up for your ideas, come on, you have to check your own ideas." It's like yeah. a, something. It's not working well, man. It's, uh... So we have several discussions about that, and, and then I found myself in the right moment where I was about to decide about me, my future, and if I, will, I was going to be Pablo Escobar 2.0. And, and it took me like ten minutes to say no. This is not the the future I want for me. And I can I can tell you that it was it was for me the, the hardest decisions to make because. Everybody wanted me dead already. So it wasn't, it didn't sound like a good idea just to, you know, to have a white flag and say, hey, I want peace because everybody wants you dead. So, and nobody's going to give you protection because that was even harder for me. It it, it wasn't the kind of situation where I was just calling the 911 and then I was going to receive Colombian police help. No, (laughs) they were going to send somebody to kill me if I made the call so it, there was no police for me there was no government that could truly protect me so I was totally alone and that brings even more fear to your life and to your decisions could you know could feel and and, and and you know you could not take the right decisions if the fear is in the middle of the of your mind and your conversations and your reality. Yeah. So I needed to find a way to calm down and and to chill and to to realize what I just said. And during those those ten minutes, when I saw the violence that I was capable of, and, and that brings me a lot of fear again to my to myself because I I, I scared about myself. You know, I said to me. Wow, well, I, I I never imagined that I was even capable to imagine the kind of things that I could do to harm others. So I stopped, you know, I, I just feel this is not the life I want for me. And and I grabbed the, the phone again and called the media and I said, I want to say something. I regret what I just said 10 minutes ago. I asked for forgiveness and, and I, I will do whatever it takes to make peace in my country. And since that day it's been like 29 years already because we're in december and my father passed away you know 29 years ago so it since then i've been you know fulfilling the second promise the promise of making peace reconciliation and, and it was hard because as you asked me from the beginning of the question you wanted you wanted me to talk about what happened after my father's death and how we ended up having a meeting with the, with his worst enemies in the Cali cartel. Uh, there was another city called Cali and both got involved in a, in a very violent war between the cartels. And uh, some say that it was because of the, to control the, the, the business. Some others said because there was uh, a lady in the middle and, and some others says because there was a guy in the middle, uh, a story of love and, and jealousy and uh, many, many, but that's, that's not important. The important thing is uh, that a very big violence started in, in front of our eyes. And that, that day came, it was January 13 in 1988, when a car bomb exploded in, in our home. Uh, it was 700 kilos of dynamite, just to give you a, a, like two miles uh, in the surroundings. All the windows were totally destroyed by the sound and the explosion. So it was, it was a very, very violent situation that even thought my father thought that we were dead, that we couldn't survive such a, uh, a, a bomb. And, and, and we did. It's a miracle that I'm here speaking with you today. So, uh, suddenly we received an invitation to go and see the guys who put us the bomb and who were willing to kill me and my whole family. And, and so there was like, uh, a very weird invitation if if you imagine, hey, you have to go to see some guys and perhaps they are going to kill you after your meeting. So I don't know how many would be there sharp, you know, on time, but I was there 24 hours before the meeting because I was tired, you know, running away from my own past, from my own family, from my own father. So I I, I never committed any crime and and I was like uh, paying for those crimes already so i was willing to stop to put us to make this stop whatever it takes and i wrote my will i was 16 and i and my mother joined me in that trip we were supposedly under the protection of the government so we needed to escape from from our bodyguards uh, from the government and that's how we we went to cali city we we went there by car And then we arrived, and there was three of the four biggest bosses in the cartels, um, Cali cartels. Uh, There were Miguel Rodriguez Orejuela, the chief, uh, Pacho Herrera, and Chepe Santa Cruz Londoño, the three of them. Pacho Herrera was the one who ordered uh, to put us the bomb in our house. And uh, and I was there, uh, supposedly, to talk about, you know, how they were going to kill me because they already told me that they were going to kill me there so i had no hope yeah. to get out alive from there and but the saddest part of the meeting was that i found mm, the rest of my father's family there but not with us with them you know as part of my father's enemy not as part of the family so i i felt i felt you know deeply Betrayed by my by, by own grandmother. I, I wish that she could be the, the, the kind lady that we all saw uh, in, uh, in the narco series from Netflix, but that, that wasn't the case. She was even more violent and not kind at all, and, and expecting um, to see us die that day and, and to claim for what we should inherit from my father. And and, and and it was a very, very hard situation for me because I, I felt so disappointed uh, just to discover this betrayal from our family and, and to understand in that very moment that my father's worst enemies weren't outside of his life. They were already inside of his own family.
0: That's, that's I mean, to go in scared thinking... I'm probably not gonna make it out alive. So the courage to go into that meeting, you, you talked about that. And then you, you you told me when we were together, hopefully you don't mind sharing, the, the quote that your grandmother said uh, at the end of the meeting. Do, do you mind sharing what, what she said?
1: Of course. Well, no, she she said like explicitly, uh, she said, before you kill him, I want all of, all of his assets for me. She claimed uh, we, we, we inherited some Big big buildings, you know, uh, some of them well known as the Monaco Building, Omni Building, and the Dallas Building. It was like three big structures in Medellin city, and she wanted all for her, uh, and and she was like talking like another member of the Cali Cartel, not as my grandmother. So that was sad, you know, uh, because you don't expect to receive. Uh, that kind of love from your grandmother and um, so I, it was very very disappointing because I saw that my father loved very much every member of the family and he was willing to give everything for them none of them have worked any, not even one day in their lives and they are still living from my father's you know, uh, money and And it's, it's very sad that they don't have. They don't show any respect, and even worse than that, my my grandmother wore. She went to a notary, and she made another will for her, and in the will I have a copy of it. She never, she never set my father's name. So because the notary asked him, okay, you are mother of who? So she started, you know, naming the the sons and the daughters, and she forgets about my father. So. I, I I even went to the justice and I said to the judge, "Hey, nobody forgets about Pablo Escobar, but his mother, she did. So do something about it because you know." So this is how the relationship between our family was built, and uh, and, and it's sad because I I dedicated myself to peace, to reconciliation and forgiveness. Uh, you know, reaching my father's victims to. To, you know to make them feel that I'm not proud of my fire, my father's violence, to, to let them know that I, I feel ashamed because of what my father did you know because of how many people killed and how much far, harm. So for me it was like a, it's sad to speak about forgiveness and reconciliation and you cannot achieve that with your own family. you know it's a, it's a contradiction again in my life. Uh, But, you know, I still believe in forgiveness and reconciliation because so far I spoke with 150 direct family members and I'm speaking about my father's victims. So, um, and I have no even one single case that somebody said to me, hey, I am not able to forgive or whatever like that. So. Uh, and because the victims, they understand that when I'm asking for their forgiveness, I'm not asking uh, to forget what happened in the past because memory is it's very, very important, very important. So um, it's sad when I cannot speak and do the same with my family members because they are not willing to participate honestly in a reconciliation, a truly and a genuine uh, reconciliation process because you know it's like they are just they decided to dedicate their lives to harm people and just to give you an, a simple example of how they are it's like the, my my father was a good guy of the family so you can imagine the rest
0: the one that's a pretty lonely place well, you you come out I mean you could have had all this power and kept going and been surrounded by um, but by, by your dad's people. And at least you have that family, right? That, that gang, if you will, or, or, or that, that love you, you, you walk away from that, yeah. so you would think it would be your family that would be there to, to capture you and say, Hey, this is the right thing to do. And instead they think of you as weak in this moment. I think, I think you shared that. Is it now they, they see and even the opportunity the and so now you're really alone. It's because you and your sister, right? I mean, in, in that moment, that's the only real person you. You could trust in your yeah, mother. And my sir. mother
1: and my mother and my, my my girlfriend. There was no one else. You know, it was like. And this this is something important. And thanks for for thanks for bringing that up is that I real, I think that and I really believe this, that because of when my father passed away and I look around in my life there was only three women willing to stay with me you know and to give their lives for me and no one else you know no men and this is not a, about a gender thing or something like that but i truly believe that that god put me in that place only surrounded by women because i believe they have a deeper way of looking things and and some sometimes we are like superficial I, this is what i believe as a man but i i appreciate and i i feel grateful for Living that moment, even if it was a very lonely moment, as you mentioned it very well, um, I felt surrounded by the right people who was, who were pushing me to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. Because if I, I, I know my culture and we live the macho culture, it's like you're the strongest, you are the man of the family, so kill everyone. It's like nobody has the right to say anything. Just kill them all and that's it. And, and that wasn't my, my kind of, my way of thinking. And thank God I was surrounded by women who were encouraging me to move forward in life, to do something better, to study, to be someone else and to, you know, to keep uh, con- and continue uh, walking the path of peace for me and for my life and for my family. And that was very, very important in my life. You know, the presence of these three women my sister, my mother and my girlfriend are still with me and they are still my you know, the the, the company that I have today is with them. I, I don't have anyone else. You know, the loneliness continue for many years because I we are still here in Buenos Aires. I've been living here for more than half of my life already. It's like uh, you know and 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 I have no no convictions, you know, I have no there's no uh, Nothing that I should, I find that I should stay here. I don't find any reasons. I didn't harm any people, but I know that I should remain in Argentina because uh, perhaps, and sadly, Colombia would not be my, you know, the place to be for me, the place to exist. And that's sad because it's my country. It's my, my culture, and I would love to be there, but, you know, I'm, I feel also gratitude to just to stay here in Argentina to have the possibility to travel around the world and share my story. And most, most, uh, you know, the thing that I love most is, you know, that I, I found myself capable of raising awareness between the kids that they are starting to believe that my father is a kind of success case that should be followed and imitated in many ways. So, I, I found, you know. Even being the owner of a very violent story, a very violent past from my father's side, uh, I, I found uh, very great tools to to provide peace to society. So it's uh, another contradiction in my life. Being the son of Pablo Escobar, now I work for crime prevention and and raising awareness between the kids, and I feel very comfortable with that. And and because it's like a, I found, you know, something to do, something positive to do
0: with you know, a very, very negative. You have this, this loving part of you that wants to do great things. And that, that comes from somewhere, right? And obviously, you talk a lot about your mother. Your father was known for being very generous um, to to the community. Um, it's not like he was just killing, right? He was also building churches and, and, and farms and that sort of thing do you think that that was a true love for the people or do you think that was a, a, a means to an end that because you, you obviously took some of that love and extracted that into your own life in a, in a good way. And, and so I just, I always try to figure out where that comes from and do, do you follow what I'm saying?
1: Yes. Yes. I totally follow you. Um, well, I truly believe that this is something positive that I learned from my father and he teach me this is it's, it's the joy of giving, you know, I, I, I truly, you know, you cannot lie. Your, your face don't lie. When you are giving something to some people that really needs uh, whatever you are giving to them. I, I saw my father's face, you know, and he was happy to help. Uh, and But I, I always remember we, we should never forget that he was helping a lot of people that's that's a fact i cannot deny that but he was helping yeah. a lot of people with uh with money that was you know full of blood behind so that's another contradiction because you know you can build a housing project for 5000 families as he did but if you kill 2,000 people, it's like, uh, it's not like uh, you can balance things because of that. You know, you, nobody will forget everything he did, but mostly the negative stuff. So, um, it's, it's different and difficult to, for me, to establish a very thin line that divides, you know, the man, the father, the drug dealer, the, the criminal all in the same guy, inside the same guy. Uh, so it's it's difficult to, uh, and this is why I uh, we need all a lot of time to talk about my father because he's a very complex kind of guy who well, at the same time, and I believe he showed us also not only the path we shouldn't take, but also uh, how far can go a human being in terms of love and in terms of hate too. Because he was, uh, he never forget uh, anyone who make any harm to him. So he was always like pursuing the guy or the family who was after him. So they will, he will make them pay back. So he was like, uh, and at the same time, he was, you know, willing to kill himself for his own family. And so it's it's very complex and difficult to describe a man because if we said, yeah. He he was a a, ma- a man who who loved to help the poor. That's 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 true. He was a man who loved to help the kids. That's true. And he was and to answer directly your question, I truly believe that my father perhaps was the only politician in Colombians' history yeah. who never came into politics to to became rich. Because he was already rich, you know, and most of the politicians, they, they get into the politics because that's the way to, you know, corruption and they, they grab the people's money and that's how they get rich. And but that wasn't my father's uh, intention because he was already a billionaire. So he wasn't there because he wanted to steal the money from the people and because he was trying to gain some kind of recognition from the poorest people. Because he was already helping them before he was a polity, before entering to politics, so um, I believe that my father understood very quickly the power that will give him uh, once he started to, uh, you know, help the poorest, and that truly stay and maintain him with with life for many years because the poorest people in Colombia were always willing to protect him from the police, you know, from the authorities. So it was like, a, he built some kind of protection a shell for him from the poorest areas in Colombia. And everybody started to love him. And even if they knew that he was like living in the next house, they will never call the police. And if they saw policemen, they would call my father, hey, Mr. Pablo, the policeman is coming. So, uh, this is how he built also loyalty from the poorest people, and this is how he built a very big structure that allows him to be totally informed. Let me give you an example of that. He was uh, he liked very much to give taxis, you know, as as, as a gift, a taxi, a cab, a, a vehicle for families yeah. that didn't have any any income. So, so he, he gave several taxis, I don't know, 100 or, or 200 automobiles for families. And he knew that these families were starting to uh, drive the, the taxis and they were going to stand uh, next to the airport. And every North American that you know arrives to Colombia or to Medellin City, he already knew because the taxi drivers would call him right away, hey, Mr. Escobar, there was a North American who I just leave him in um, Hilton Hotel, room four oh five. Do whatever you want with him. You know, it's like uh, so. He already knew because he he was very smart, and he he said that the taxi drivers in every city they were the ones who knew who knew truly what was going on in the city because they heard all the conversations in the back. You know. Because when you when you grab a cab, you you, you just start a conversation and, and you forget about the driver and you continue the conversation like if the driver never existed, but he's there listening, you know, paying attention. So this is a way of uh, bringing a lot of information for yourself. So my father was totally informed uh, about what was going on around the city, who arrives and who leaves the city.
0: You know, you, you told me what, you know, back that family real quick, a story. So you, you decide I want to be an architect um, and you needed money to be an architect. And I, I believe it was your aunt you called. Um, you, do you mind sharing that story just to show yeah. what money people versus love?
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's uh, when my father passed away, of course, and after the, the Cali cartel meeting, And we were forced to give all the money to to the cartel, to the opposite cartel. The reason it was naturally they told us we want to, you know, to recover all the money we spent all these years trying to hunt your own dad. So and they told me if you hide one coin, we kill you. So it was easy to negotiate with them. We just give them all and that's it there was no warranty that they were going to preserve our lives too nobody signed anything so it was just believe it or not this is how it's going to happen and so we went to we we were forced to change legally our names because there was no country in the world who was willing to receive us because my father was one of the most wanted men in the world he was already you know he dead but the the prejudices remained after his death so nobody was willing to receive us and this is how we found out that there was the only way out was changing legally our names this is why i i call myself today as Juan Sebastian Marroquín Santos and not Juan Pablo Escobar and this is how we 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 got a an agreement with the Mozambican government they were willing to receive us in, in, in the southern, in south part of um, Africa, and there was no future in that country. There, we went to the supermarket, no food. The supermarket was open, but there was no food, only the lights uh, on, and that's it. Uh, no water, no place for living, uh, only one hotel in, in the whole country. So it was like, uh, okay, there were, if we thought that there wasn't any kind of future in Colombia, Here in Africa, there's even less future. Uh, This is how we got, uh, we decided to came to Argentina. And and this is how I started to study. First, I studied industrial design. Uh, Unfortunately, during the middle of that time, the country wasn't good. Uh, The industries were closing. So I was, you know, studying uh, a kind of profession that had no, no future at the time. But, um, and, and I continue in the same Institute and I became a teacher. And, and suddenly one day the police arrived and they just handcuffed me and they took me away and they invented me a case. And so I was in jail with my mom and, and suddenly in all the media, my, my face and my new legal identity appear and I was accused of money laundering, of, you know, uh, you know, having fake passports. And that was all lies. During seven years, continuously, the press, the Argentinian press, continuously, repeatedly said that we were guilty, 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 and guilty. After seven years of several investigations, we went to the Supreme Court. And once they set up, you know, free and they declare us innocent, the press said nothing that day there was no news the news was that we were guilty but once the supreme court set us free no news because no, nobody cares about that yeah so we remain in the in this in the society like ah oh, they are guilty okay because they never published that we were yeah. but this is how i started to study architecture because when my mother was still in jail she told me that the best gift that I could bring her inside her prison was, you know, the news that I started studying again, whatever it takes, uh, any, any profession. And I like architecture very much because the industries were closed, but a lot of people continue investing in their homes. So they needed architects for that. And I became a 3d expert, you know, drawing 3d designs and, in that time, nobody did that. You know, when you study architecture, this is a way to learn how to build things, not how to destroy things. And 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 for me, my profession has to be, and it's um, you know it, it matches very very well with the kind of life I want to design for myself a- because I want to rebuild, I want to redesign, I want to reinvent myself. I want to redefine my own limits. And my profession gave me the tools to perhaps uh, see things in a different way, to project, you know, to just draw something in a a napkin and then you see a building after that. So this is also the magic of, you know, destiny, the magic of love, of family uh, that takes you to the most unbelievable places I should be dead already, Trent, and you know that. And but God, you know, uh, wants me to to stay here. a while And I'm very happy for that. And I'm just, you know, trying to do the best I can with the time I had.
0: You know, you mentioned something earlier, um, talking about a billionaire in the '80s. I don't think people understand. Like, a billionaire in the '80s was, you know, now you hear about him. That that was a. That's an insane number. Um, like just give a feel for like some of the excess, like I, I think you, you described a story when you were 16 to me about coming to, to California, um, just to give a feel for what, what you could have had and what you walked away from. I think that cause it's so when you talked about some of the things that you had or had access to it, you know, it's so mind-blowing that you said, nah, I don't want to go away from that. I get why. And and knowing you and seeing how much you care more about love than excess, but in a society that cares so much about excess, in a society that I mean, I'd say three things from this call already that we'll talk about is excess and how how tempting that is. What people want to be perceived as famous, right? You know, yeah. everybody from an influencer to a Bill Gross cared more about being famous than being a great investor or whatever. Two. um, your ability to, to, to not only say no, but to surround yourself with, with good people in a very, very lonely place. I'm just curious, some of your best friends back then were, were probably your bodyguards, right? Like, yeah, what happened Mm -hmm. with the relationships there, but, but maybe first let's start with, with the excess thing. Just give me a feel for what that felt like. Um, or, or or maybe that story Mm -hmm. that you shared with me, if you don't mind on the California and Vegas. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, it's like um it's like suddenly you look around and and there's nothing else to buy. You already bought everything you like and 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 there's still more money coming uh, every every day and and money that it's there's no room to keep the money because more money is coming than rooms available to put the money inside just to give you an example of that my father's earnings between let's say the beginning of the 80s only just to speak about the city of miami where you know in a single weekend my father was receiving between 50 to 70 million dollars each weekend uh, and i'm not counting la new york chicago and other cities so there was no room to 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 keep the money and my father had like a 25 uh, different properties in the US with with high-tech basements where he used to hide his own money, his cash. But there was no more room to, to keep the cash. And, and he was having trouble uh, counting the money because it takes a lot of time. So this is how they started weighing the money instead of counting. They, they said, okay, I don't know how much it weights, you know, a million dollars, but this is how they start just uh, counting them, the the money, because there was no no room. My father found a way to make, you know, an unlimited amount of money during the 80s. Imagine a farmer that suddenly, with no education, found himself receiving $100 million each weekend in cash. And so it's like a... What should I do? You know, what should I buy with this? And, and this is how, and, and I was in the middle of that, of course. I was receiving several gifts. My, my, you know, the Hacienda Annapolis, it looked like, uh, our own Jurassic Park because we had, you know, real scale dinosaurs before Spielberg imagined them. You know, it's like, uh, many years before Spielberg. So it was like, a we have our own, you know, many helicopters, airplanes, uh, airfields, even our own gas station inside our property because we, we didn't want it to go out. We, we just wanted, if you need gas, we have it in our property. 700 employees, more than 100,000 uh, fruit plants, and 700 employees, several people surrounding us, you know, luxury. Fear, weapons, women's, cars, uh, a lot of uh, things to do and, uh, and money to spend in, 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 in stupid things. And I went to, to the United States and I have like a small trip for during two months. I was a teenager. I was like 14 years old teenager. And And, and, and I remember that I went to Las Vegas twice in the same trip. And I was, you know, like in the casino, betting, you know, nobody asked me for the idea. Uh, I know that I was, I look like, I look a little bit older, but nobody asked me for the idea because I knew, they knew that I have a lot of money to spend in the casino. So they didn't care about the, the ID thing. I know that in the United States, they, they, they ask you for ID for anything. And I was, you know, hey, I want a whiskey. And they just, just bring it to me. I was 14 year old kid in Las Vegas. You know, spending money in a casino, uh, asking for whiskey or any kind of alcohol, and they just bring it to me. And we spent in those time it was like uh, 1990 approximately, and I spent uh, half a million dollars in two months. And I, I I didn't bought anything. I I I just spent that in you know tips, partying, restaurants, hotels, partying and having fun. And we rented a motorhome and we, we drove from Miami to LA. We crossed all the United States and we stayed in the best hotels and we had no plan, no route. We just decided in the middle of the road where to stop because there was just plenty of money. And, and if we needed a house to buy just to spend the night, we could do that if we wanted. So it was, you know, it's, uh, you cannot imagine and it's, and it's, it's, nobody teach you how to deal with that how to handle that because it's just there, the money and, and and your father's power at the same time. So it was, I could be and I, you know, I should be a spoiled kid because of that. You you know, I, I question myself how, how how good I am because, you know, if you remember a little bit of my, my past and my life, I should be a very different kind of guy. But I truly believe that what makes the difference was the love inside the family. How I was raised in a family that there wasn't a lack of love. Always love was in the first place. Love for the family. Love for you know being honest between us. Because uh, I, I, I said that my father was brutally honest with me. And that means, yes, son, I killed those guys. Or yes, son, I am responsible for the kidnapping of these journalists, or whatever, or these bombings, or the terrorist attacks. That is being brutally honest with your son. I I, now that I am a father of a nine-year-old kid, I said, "Wow, how could be for me as a father if I decided to be a criminal? Should I tell my kid what I was, what I'm doing?" I think I should because somebody else will do that, so I prefer to do it by myself. If, if you I don't write the narrative, like somebody my else father, will, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is why my father wanted to share with me in first place what he was doing. I have handwritten letters from him telling me what he was going to do, uh, and he was telling me in the handwritten letters, he said, don't feel um, afraid next week because perhaps you're gonna hear more bombs. It's like you know, it's like what who, what kind of father do I have?
0: If your father, if you could if you think you were having a conversation with him today and he was describing you, what do you think he would think?
1: Well, he will be very proud of what I did, you know and he will be happy, he will be laughing. Uh, and enjoying me, uh, enjoying seeing the guy I am today, uh, the guy I became, the guy I choose to be, because it matches perfectly with the with the son he knew, you know, um, uh, the son that truly believed in peace and 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 is and and is willing to die for it because. Uh, But not with guns in in his hands, but only with words and and spreading love and and good vibes exclusively. So he will be very, very proud uh, of what I'm doing. Um, I know that he, you know, encouraged me to find my own identity as a human being, as a man. And he will never question my attitude, you know, towards peace. And reconciliation and forgiveness with with his own victims. I know that he will be there and applaud me for that because he was a very supportive father. At the same time, he was never he wasn't the kind of father who who was willing to um, and expecting uh, to having me next to next to his share uh, directing his own cartel. He was totally aware that that was a killing machine that nobody will dare to, to, to handle. And when you truly you love your son, you wouldn't like for him that kind of life. You know, it's like, this is not the kind of life I want for my kid. I, I am He already witnessed that. So he never encouraged me to follow him. He was always telling me, you have to study, you have to move forward. You have to, I can pay you for the studies that I couldn't pay for myself. So, just do something else. If you want to be a hairdresser i'm going to give you the best saloon and if you want to be a doctor i'm going to give you the best hospital. So this was the man who was you know willing to do whatever it takes
0: you know it it's what you just said was is so powerful to me because, as I have gone through this exploration on these podcasts the the idea of unconditional love is is so. Important. You know, you have parents that want their kids to go to Ivy League and they want to do this. And some of it, I think, comes from their own mistakes or their own insecurities or their own, you know, imposter's complex, whatever it is. Some of it comes to just they want the best from their kids. Um, so they, they, they ride them harder because they want a better life than them. But time and time again, it, it's unconditional love. It's, you, you know, you can make as much money, you can be as successful as you want, but the kids. Kids get fucked up when they're not loved, um, and you see it all the time. And somehow, as spoiled as you were going to, around Vegas, and I think you said you had your own apartment at sixteen. Yeah. Um, in a in a nice big at 11. It wasn't like a little one. At eleven. At eleven, sorry. <laughs> you you said your mom set you up with with an apartment and just said this is your your compound, right?
1: Yeah, she said to me, I prefer to know where to look and, and how, how to find you uh, if something happens. But uh, I don't want to look in every hotel because I know that you are going to start, uh, you know, going out with girls and, and I, I, I don't want to miss. Um, I don't want to be in the middle of that. But I want to know where you are and I, I, I want to know how to find you if something happens and she gave me an apartment as a gift, just gave me the keys and the apartment is ready. Anything you need inside. She put me a um, uh, decorator and do whatever it takes and just spend all the money you want in, in that apartment. And, and and so I was in the middle of, uh, I don't know in English, but it was called Sodoma and Gomorrah. You know, it's like a, it was like a, sex parties uh, everywhere It was in 11 years old so it's a, it was a crazy life uh, but as you said it before and i believe that love was truly the thing that made the difference you know because i should have been a very spoiled kid i, I never received good examples uh, i can imagine i received the worst examples you can imagine. Uh, but I choose differently. Why? Because I was raised in a family that love really matters. It was the most important thing. Uh, and that truly makes a difference uh, about the kind of human being I am today. Um, because I witnessed how others were was raised without love. And they became bandits. They became drug dealers. They became criminals because there was no love in their childhood this is why I, I i said to every father if you have a son a daughter just the best asset you could give her is love there's not this money that's that's uh, an accessory not not important love it's what really matters what really makes a
0: Discipline, what did you get in trouble for? Did you ever get in trouble from your mom and dad for doing dumb things?
1: Well, you know, every kid has done dumb things. And, and I, I remember I went to, to the cinema and, and we do stupid things like, you know, like throwing a hot dog full of ketchup and, and mayonnaise to whatever he felt. You know, it's like throwing the, the hot dog, that, that kind of stupid things we do and we did in the past but we learn from that you know we we ask uh, for forgiveness we we don't feel proud about that but these are the stupid things that kids with a lot of money and power could do and if i imagine i should have done even worse things than that regarding the circumstances but uh, thank god i didn't do it because you know i i was also living in a very very close world, but nobody had the possibility to approach to me easily. There was like 15 bodyguards surrounding me all the time. So there was like a a wall that divides the world, the world for me and my life and the rest of the other's life. And when that power stopped and my father passed away and there was no more money and there was nobody else, this is how fear start to come to my life because I was even feeling fear of, you know, going to a McDonald's and asking for a hamburger. And what could be easier than that? And, you know, everybody's smiling in McDonald's and yeah. check, check your smile. And, uh, <laughs> and I was afraid of that because I never interacted with somebody else that wasn't from my circle, you know, of trust. So when, when it was a very simple thing, come on, it's like going out and let's buy a hamburger. Who, who, who cannot do that? Uh, so for me, it was very hard. It was like a, I, 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 felt, I felt more comfortable going to a meeting where, it was, where I was going to be killed already, knowing that, that, you know, going to a McDonald's to just buy an, a simple Big Mac, because I never knew how to interact with others. That was my biggest fear. And and I started to realize that. And, and of course, I started to work on that and to change that. Oh, I go and I, I, I have no problems with that, no issues. But in the, let's say, when I was in the middle of 17, 18 years old, I was feeling afraid of going to McDonald's. And, and I knew that there was no machines, machine guns inside McDonald's. There was only bread and fries and... <laughs> But I was so afraid of that because who's going to protect me because every time I went to the, that kind of places, I sat and somebody else will bring the food and somebody else will, or will order and pay for the food. No, not me. So I never did that in my life until then. And now I'm, uh, I'm aware of that. It's, it, it's, it seems like a very simple thing, but this is the things that happens when when you have such an uh an extreme life in terms of money violence and and in all the the you know the limits because money a lot of money and zero money violence full violence and zero violence it's like uh all go to, to to the extreme
0: so i have two more questions for you one I, one's a reminder and then a question the reminder is remember that night that we spent together you promised we were going back to Colombia with a treasure map
1: <laughs> absolutely absolutely so and when are we going back to Colombia with our treasure how, map <laughs> how about Fev- February yeah, we can do it by the, the last week of February back and then from- I
0: finished every podcast with you you get to ask me any questions you have for me
1: man no t- um, just not questions just uh, thank you for you know for questioning me, for, for asking me uh, deeper questions about my own life, my own behavior, my own thoughts, because that also helped me to to understand better my life, my decisions and my thoughts and my feelings towards my father, uh, towards peace and reconciliation. I believe as, as we all know, this is a, a very long story and we can, you know, Talk for days, and, and it's interesting because there is so much things that we could learn from, from all these anecdotes in different ways. Um, you know, having the event we had together, and and having many other events with, with uh, businessmen, and and we all learn a lot from from the same stories. And every time is different, even if, even if it is the same story. Because it reconnects differently with, with others' uh, lives. And, and, and I think that the only way we could use possibly, positively this story is um, when, when we can raise awareness of, of what is good and what is not. And how can we use this properly to learn that this story should not be repeated again? Because I'm not proud of this, my father's story. You know, it's my father. I loved him very much. I was willing to die for him. And I questioned him when he was alive, but I am not proud of what he did. Uh, I'm proud of the father. I'm not proud of the drug trafficker.
0: Well, I, I I think that a couple of the things that we I've learned from you that I want to share is one is bravery, bravery, and that you were brave enough to leave the business that was so laid out for you. Um, and then walking into that, that meeting that day, like I couldn't imagine the anxiety that was happening. And then, and then brave enough to t- to come tell this story because it'd be easy to go, I'm going to go into hiding and never be found again. Yeah. By telling this story, you're like, you, you know, people understand who you are and, and that you exist. And if somebody else, some crazy person wants to avenge their father's death from something earlier, like it's very brave of you to do what you do and to, and and to have that courage. And this, the second is, is our society seems to want to cancel everybody when they make a mistake. So our society would take your comments that day and say, Hey, he said he wanted to avenge his father's death and everybody's going to die. And that's how they would want to frame you because it's sensational, right? It's, it sells you. And and you told me the story, even how Narcos hired you to come in and, and, and work for them for a little bit. And it wasn't really, they didn't really want to know the truth. They wanted the sensationalization version of, of, of the family and, and forgiveness. You, you taught us and you teach me to forgive and to think that just because you may perceive that you were guilty in Buenos Aires of, of money laundering. It's not true. Uh, we need to understand the real story of who you are and, and where you've come. And I think that's so powerful. And then the, fa- f- the final piece, which I think most of my, my listeners appreciate is like, how do we raise our kids so they're not fucked up? And, and I think that that, that love, not, not by giving them the, the material things, but by giving them true love mm-hmm. is such a powerful gift. That, that we can give our, our, our next generation. And, and, and then the final piece is how we can learn from the prior generation, right? Like I love my dad. He's I, and he loves me. And, but there, there's certain things that I learned that he did because he came from nothing. Um, I have the yeah. luxury of having a successful dad. I could take those skills and go, okay, I don't have to have that. You know, I don't have to do everything he did to, to get to where I am today. And it's, it's such a powerful story. Um, I'm so I'm so glad that you you, you spend another hour with me. Um, I'm so looking forward to no, going back to Columbia with our treasure map one day.
1: Well, <laughs> we have to we have to go and pack your things, and in a couple of months we'll be there and and bring something so we can dig a little bit and and see where the how the dollars Perfect. are because and- they are very old now from the 80s until now. I, I wish that they they are not uh, rotten. <laughs> so let's see. People are going to be and, and a little
0: I, bit curious when we're church pews and and digging for holes. So
1: yeah, <laughs> and and you made me remember with your last comments. Um, it's hard to say no to money when you need money. It's very hard. It's the one of the hardest decisions for me because I remember an anecdote. Um when my father passed away, a bunch of guys approached to me and they said, hey, we have some of your father's agendas and we know who owes to your father a lot of money. So they told me that they could bring me to the table like $40 million in cash. I just needed to say, go ahead. That was the only word I should say. And And I needed money in that time that precise time of my life I desperately needed money and I was like it was like so easy for me to just to say okay bring it to me it, that was the only thing that I needed to say and to do of course they were willing to do whatever it takes to bring the money and they were going to have 30 percent of the money but there was still a lot of money like let's say 30 million dollars in cash. And having the courage to say, I like money, but not that kind of money. So I don't want to be part of it. Just, you know, destroy the agenda. I'm not interested. They look at me like, this guy is crazy. It's like, we are offering him $4 million in cash. And he's saying, no. It's like, it's stupid or what? So between being brave And being stupid, there's a very thin line. Uh, But I'm happy that I took that decision. I don't have the 40, not even the 30 or the 20 or the $10 million, but I feel 10 times richer than that because I was strong enough to take that decision for my life because I knew that it was the best decision. If I took the other decision, I I would be you know um a slave yeah, a slave a slave from my own decision because of my decisions and and this is why now i stand up and i said you know loud i am innocent i don't care if you see me as a guilty man but i am innocent because i choose peace because i choose to behave because i choose to respect others because I choose to respect the law, I know that my father never, ever respected the law. Never even looked at the at the law. He wrote the law. He wrote his own law, and that's a, that's a very bad example for a kid. But it was a, the greatest example for me because now I know that I need to respect the law and to, and to fulfill every commitment as a human being, as a citizen, as a good citizen. And I feel you know offended when some authorities you know, dare to, to invent me, cases against me, to, to just to accuse me of crimes that I never committed. They, they should someday start showing some kind of respect for what I'm doing as a human being, you know. Uh, they should see me not as a threat, but as an asset to raise awareness and to fight violence without violence, uh, as I do.
0: Well, have a have a great weekend. Thank you so much for your time, and um, and, and let's chat soon.
1: Thank you very much. All the best to you, and and thank you for having me here in your show. It's a, it's another another great adventure of you know exploring ourselves to know a little bit more about what we learned or what we didn't learn in life. So thank you, thank you very much, and wishing you all the best and peace.
0: All right, Merry Christmas. Take care.
1: Merry Christmas. Happy New Year too.